Kate and Mark are going to come and read for us. So our first reading is from Psalm 23, which is on page 392 of your Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The second reading is Philippians 4, verse 4 to 13, and that can be found on page 832. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me, Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. How's that? Not good. Are we on? You can hear me? Awesome. Thank you. Um, well, folks, uh, we usually go through books of the Bible as a whole. Uh, we usually read um, yeah, whole slabs of a Bible. We work through uh, bit by bit, and we've been doing that this year with Revelation and with uh, 1 Timothy. We've just, done, we've just done 1 Timothy, and that's been great. Um, uh, tonight we're pausing just uh, for a week or two weeks, actually, to, to think of things topically, and uh, we're going to be looking at the topic of contentment tonight. Uh, Jesus mentioned in, in one of his uh, parables to his disciples, um, uh, and he sort of related to his disciples as though they were soils, different types of soils. Um, some of them are hard soils, and the seed finds it hard to grow in the hard soil. Some of them are soft soils, and the, the seed grows really well. And other soils have thorns and thistles that seek to choke 
whatever grows up from the seed. And I guess what we're, what we're doing as we look at the topic of contentment is um, uh, what I want us to do is just consider some of the thorns and thistles that threaten to struggle us as Christians, some of the worries and concerns of the world. Um, and what I hope uh, tonight is that we will see in the Lord Jesus that we can have great contentment. Um, and we're going to be looking at it a bit next week as well. So there's, there's more to, to say on it than just tonight. Um, but why don't we start by praying um, like Steph has already done. I want to do it again though. Um, and just pray that God will work through his word in us. Uh, Father, we do, we do give you great thanks for your word. And um, as we hear it again now, this week, um, we just ask that you'd please do your work in us by your spirit. Uh, please confront the desires and longings of our hearts that, that aren't right, that don't sit right with you. Uh, please guide us, console us and nourish and feed us but also teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to start by reading um, this parable of contentment uh, written by a guy called John Ortberg, um, and it's, I think it's very clever, and I think you'll find it interesting. Once there was a young girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the Golden Arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named the Happy Meal. May I have it, please, she asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents told her. The toy is a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised beyond what it's really worth. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she thought. She knew that they would not just be buying fries, McNuggets and a dinosaur stamp. They would be buying happiness. She was convinced that she had a little McVacuum at the core of her soul. After all, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in a Happy Meal. So she explained, I want that Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything before. And if I get it, if I get it, I will never ask for anything again, ever. No more complaining, no more demanding. If you get me that happy meal, I'll be content for the rest of my life. It seemed a pretty good deal to her parents, so they bought it. And it worked. She grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life, in many ways, was hard. The man she married turned out to be a louse. He abandoned her with three children and no money. The kids, too, were a disappointment. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meagre resources, and eventually left without a trace. When she was an old woman, the social security gave out, and she had to live from hand to mouth. But she never complained. She had gotten the Happy Meal. She would think back to it often. I remember that Happy Meal. She said to herself, what great joy I found there. Just as she had predicted, it had brought her lasting satisfaction. And she was grateful for the rest of her life. It's a lovely little parable. But uh, does it ever work this way? It never works that way. Uh, John Ort- Actually, some of the comments that John Ortberg says afterwards in this little parable are really quite clever and quite poignant. Listen to this. Uh, you would think that after a little while, children would catch on. That they would say, you know, a happy nail never really brings lasting happiness. I'm- I'm not going to get sucked in by that sort of marketing ploy again. It's not going to happen this time. But it doesn't happen. Uh, the excitement wears off, sure. They, ne- they need a new fix and they buy another Happy Meal and they keep buying them and it keeps not working. 
In fact, the only one that Happy Meal seems to bring happiness to is McDonald's. And you ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that grin all the time? Billions of, of sales of Happy Meals. And then he says this. This is really quite telling. Of course, only a child would be so naive. Only a child could be foolish enough to believe that a change in circumstance could bring lasting contentment. Or maybe not. Maybe when you get older, you don't necessarily get any smarter. It's just that your Happy Meals get more and more expensive. That's true, isn't it? It's a great little parable. It's... it's, um, it's true. You know, whether you seek it in glossy magazines, whether you seek contentment in web catalogues, whether it's in your career's ambitions, or whether it's just the differences that you notice between the other people that are sitting next to you. Um, you know, at start, the differences about the people that you know and meet, are, they bring you great joy. Uh, you see them and you think, you really love the fact that they're smarter and funnier and sportier and more musical. And the next moment, those differences... Well, you're not cherishing them quite so much and you start comparing yourself with them and the next moment you're, you're envious of them and your self-esteem plummets and uh, suddenly you, need, you dream up another Happy Meal that you need to buy. And in every case, contentment is the thing we long for. Whether it's something we get out of a brochure, whether it's something we find in comparison to other people and the discontentment that we feel, that discontentment that boils inside us, when we experience that, well, there are times where it can really tear us apart. I don't think I need to poke and prod anymore to sort of get it going. I think you know what I mean. Uh, this is a part of our lives, isn't it? I think we all know it in one way or another to varying degrees. And it's a topical sermon tonight, so we're not going to be looking at just one passage. We're going to look at multiple ones, but I'd love it if you could open up to Philippians because I think here is a passage that is really going to help us out a little bit. And I think God has a lot to, to, to teach us from this. Um, and it's just that that passage that Mark read out for us before, starting at, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, and just to verse 13, and I'm wondering if I could just read that out again so we can have it fresh in our minds and we can just read um, what's going on there. So Philippians 4, verse 10, let me read it again. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Well, it's important for us to get the context right. What we're reading here is a thank you letter from Paul. So Paul's writing a letter of thanks to the Philippians. Um, and what he does at one point is he sort of says, like you can see it in verse 10, he's saying thanks. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you've renewed your concern for me. And towards the end of the chapter, we realize that they've given him some uh, amount of money and it's helped him along the way. But he wants to say really clearly in verse 11, I'm not desperate. I didn't need what you gave me. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. You see that in verse 11? I'm not saying this because I'm in need. It's a funny kind of thank you letter. It's like, thanks for giving it to me, but I didn't really need it, but thanks anyway. It's a, it's a little bit funny. But in any case, what we have here from verse 11 to 13 is a really important aside into an, in a description of what it means to be content. Because when he says he doesn't need it, what he goes on to say is why he doesn't need it. And his answer is, have a look at the end of verse 11. I have learned to be content 
whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. In fact, what he says in verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I mean, wow. If you just think about it for a moment, that's a really bold claim. Um, As I've been preparing a sermon on contentment, I've been sort of tracking my own life and just thinking about um, how I could be content. And, um, you know, I think I get an idea of it, and the next thing you know, I miss the bus, and I'm cursing to myself. And I get on the bus, and someone's like races in front of me and then slows down. It's like, oh. And constantly, I'm just reminded myself of ways that I'm discontent. And when Paul says that he's learned the secret of contentment, and he's content in every situation, you think, this is, this is planets away from where I'm at. He's learned the secret of being content everywhere and all the time. I mean, is he, is he real when he says that? Is he just a super Christian that is beyond me? How is he able to do these kinds of things? Well, um, you know, let's, let's, let's find out what he, what he has to say. Um, but I want, you, I want you to sort of uh, take some pause tonight to actually reflect on this. And just as we begin, how, like, just ask yourself the question, how do I respond to that? You know, when someone says to you, you know, put me anywhere, I'll be content. Chuck me down to some place in Siberia, you know, man versus wild style. Doesn't worry me, it's fine. Give me the riches of Solomon. Not a problem, I'll do that, no worries. Doesn't concern me, doesn't faze me at all. How does, that, how does that work for you? Do you envy Paul? Do you want that kind of contentment? Do you think that he's just someone who is beyond you and is a bit of a super Christian? Well, let these questions sort of rest at the back of our minds and we're going to work through the passage here and just these three verses and sort of branch out to other parts of the Bible um, with three different points. Um, the first point is the two tests of true, uh, true contentment. It's a bit of a tongue twister, I didn't realise. Uh, the two tests of true contentment. Okay, I think I'll get it. Uh, the second one, the secret of contentment. And the third one, learning contentment. Okay, we're going to work through those three points. And the first one is the two tests of contentment. And he, he says them there. Uh, where is it? Back in verse, back in verse 11. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances... Where that, what, sorry, it's verse 12. I know what it is to be in need and what it is to have plenty. And the true test of contentment, of true contentment, is whether or not you can actually be content in both situations. Can you be content when you've got lots? And can you be content when you don't have lots? In fact, when you've got very little. And what we're going to test, I guess, is that formula for contentment that we're all trapped in, which is the one that we've alluded to already, uh, Western materialism. Um, what is Western materialism? Well, it's that, that Happy Meal mentality, that, thing that, 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 that idea that we continually need to buy more and more, and that elusive sense of contentment that we never quite get there. So it's almost like a pair of scales, where on one side you've got your, uh, you, you know, your dreams and your ambitions and your goals and uh, your benchmarks, the things that you seek. And on the other side of the scale, you've got your successes, your accomplishments, Uh, your trophies, your possessions. And if you can somehow make these two things balance, you've got contentment. And Western materialism basically teaches us, as the motto of every insurance company and bank will tell you, let us help you make your dreams come true. You know, dream big, pile up those ambitions. Sorry, ambitions over here. Pile them up like really high. 
And then what you need to do is we'll help you work really hard to get those. And just sort of, so it goes down like this. There's lots of ambitions. And we'll just help you work and work and work and balance those scales out a bit so that finally we'll be able to get you content and your dreams will come true. Picture for a moment, won't you? Okay, all those dreams that you've got, and they've all come true. Just how content you'd be, how happy you'd be. And this is the sort of the philosophy of Western materialism, that we'll get those big dreams that we have. We dream big. You know, now, there's other, there's other forms of philosophy. There's other, you know, uh, uh, there's other forms, particularly Eastern philosophy, where you empty yourself of your desires, and it's a very different way of thinking about things. But Western materialism is the one that we're in, and on the whole, I think we buy it, don't we? I mean, we sort of go into it with a sense of cynicism. We sit there not quite getting it because we sort of we do hear the happy story thing and go, oh, yeah, I'm not really going to get content by buying that iPhone. But we kind of get sucked in at the same time. And I think most of us are in this middle area where it's not quite balanced. It's not quite balanced. It's enough to make us discontent most of the time and make us keep working and working and working and occasionally we do have the, occasion, you know, the occasional anxiety attack, the occasional stomach ulcer and that kind of thing because we haven't, we haven't got the contentment. Um, but we haven't been driven to the despair that makes us really tell that, we've, that this, this whole system and philosophy isn't working out because we've still bought it. We still constantly shop and shop and whine and groan wanting the next and bigger thing. There are two different cases, these two different tests of contentment that Paul applies to say a true contentment will actually pass these tests. And the first, the first person that shows that Western contentment, the Western materialistic contentment doesn't make it, uh, or it doesn't work, is the person that doesn't actually make it. You know, when their dreams, their, their dreams far outweigh what they're able to achieve. Think of the once famous and popular actor or rock star. They've tasted the fortune. Their dreams have been big and their accomplishments have, have just have flattened and the scales flip right down and they're down and out. Think of the once successful politician whose career is cut short. They're what Paul describes as people brought low. They've worked hard. They've realised their dreams aren't in their control and their dreams don't come true. And Western materialism doesn't deliver the contentment that it promises. It fails. It doesn't, it doesn't do it. It doesn't bring contentment. And so that's the one case, the person that's been brought low. And you know, most of us aren't in that category. Most of us haven't been brought low. I don't think we, we know what it means to be brought low when Paul says that he does. The other case is the person who does make it. And I don't know, maybe there are some people that really have made it that are here tonight. You know, the people that have dreamed big, but they've also succeeded big. And not only have they met their dreams, they've gone beyond their dreams. And the scales are, even if not weighed in favour of the things that they've, they've actually accomplished and their trophies and their possessions. I'm not sure what you'd, what you'd consider to be that person. The person that's got a massive house with a harbour view. The person who's happily married with a family. I'm not sure. You've got, we've all got different sort of ways of measuring it. It's, um, it's a funny question, though. Like, do, do we really think... I think our minds are kind of trapped because we struggle to see how that person would not actually be happy. In fact, in many ways, we, we strive to be that person, that person who does, because we, we're constantly working to be that person. 
but you just need to see some of the testimonies that people, of people that have been in that situation to realise that it doesn't quite work. They don't actually find contentment. The formula break down, breaks down at this end as well. One person who testifies to this was uh, Rene Rifkin. Does anyone remember him a few years ago? Uh, in an v- interview with Rifkin a couple of years ago before his depression was made public and he took his own life, a journalist wrote this account. Let me read it for you. One brilliantly sunny April day on Sydney Harbour three years ago, this is three years before the interview, aboard his multi-million dollar mahogany motor launch Diago Shadita, he revealed that what made him tick. Stubbing out his cigar to get started on a lunch of lobster tail, king prawns and mud crab, washed down with fine Chardonnay, Rufkin asked one of his helpers to fetch a car from his warehouse in the southern suburbs. As assorted brand names like the likes of Porsche, Maserati and Rolls-Royce spilled nonchalantly from his lips, I asked him, how many cars do you actually own, Rene? I'm not sure of the exact number, said Rene, in his deeply mellifluous tone. I think it might be 66 or 67. Having moaned earlier that his helicopter was in need of repair and that his pilot's task of landing this chopper on the modest helipad which crowned his state-of-the-art yacht was the most precarious one, the sheer multitude of Rufkin's toys begged the question, why do you have so many things, Renee? That's a very good question, he said candidly. I think it's because I'm a very, very insecure person and I just want people to love me more. Contentment for Rufkin wasn't found in expensive Happy Meals. And he realised he needs something else. And he couldn't buy it. And he couldn't achieve it. As hard as he worked, as smart as he was and capable as he was, he couldn't get it. And so Western materialism fails. It fails the test. It can't do what Paul does. And this ties into Paul's second point, Paul says that contentment is a secret. It's a secret. It's not something that's really obvious to everyone. It's, el- it's elusive. It's something that we can't quite get. And it's not just Rene Rufkin who, who decides this and, and sort of discovered this. There's people throughout the centuries have, have discovered this. Uh, consider Mark Twain, who, who said this in one of his writings. Oh, you don't quite know what it is that you do want but it just, it fairly makes your heart ache and you want it so. Or the poet Wallace Stevens uh, puts it perhaps more clearly. Even in contentment, I feel the need of some imperishable bliss. There are these desires that he has that he fulfills. uh, Even even in getting all of his possessions, he gets what he wants. He gets what he wants and he gets more and more of it. Uh, He looks around, he can't think of anything else that he wants but yet there's some kind of underlying fulfilment that he does not yet have. And it's tantalising. What, what, it, like, as Paul says this, uh, he says there's a secret to, to contentment and it's tantalising. What's the secret? If only we knew what it was. If we, if, if we knew what the secret was, surely we could sell it to people and we could make heaps of money from it. I mean, there's the materialistic Western <laughs> mindset coming back in. Um, have a look at 4 verse 13, and he says what it is. He, it's, it's right in front of us. It's been here the whole time. Have a look at chapter 4 verse 13. Here's the secret of contentment. It's, 
in him. 4 verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. All things, as in all circumstances. And it's him who gives me the contentment. Of course, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. And he is the secret of contentment. Uh, Augustine summed it up really well when he wrote at the start of his book called Confessions, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And friends, it's our task as Christians to realize this more and more in our hearts. To, to realize more and more that we were made for God. When God commanded, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, mind and soul. I think that's right. When he commanded that, it wasn't just because he wanted, like he needed people to love him. It's because we need to, to love him, to be complete humans to be who we're meant to be, to be content. A longing for the Lord underlines the feeling of unfulfillment in people. And a hole exists in us until it's filled. A hunger dwells in us until it's satisfied. And Isaiah writes about this in Isaiah 53, sorry, Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. Uh, look it up later, I'll read it out to you. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters... And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And why labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear to me and come to me. Hear me so that your soul may live. He invites, God invites the people, come and Come and be satisfied and content by feeding, from, by feeding from me and my storehouse of riches. Jesus writes about the fulfillment. If you look in Matthew 13, he tells yet more parables. Matthew 13 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, what did he do? He hid it again. And then in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the value of knowing God. Something that is all-encompassing. The one who you seek more than anything. Paul demonstrates this awareness as well in Philippians, just in the book that we've been looking at. If you turn in your Bibles back to chapter 3, verse 4, turn back to Philippians 3, verse 4. Paul starts by listing some of his credentials, some of his worldly, I guess the things that you would consider his accomplishments and his trophies. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. This is Paul. He's made it, right? 3 verse 7. Have a look at verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Did you hear that? 
he considers his achievements as rubbish. And Paul's words are strong here. Like when he says rubbish, you know that he means human refuse. He's talking about poo. It's really gross, right? A big house with views of the harbour. Compared to knowing Christ, it's, it's poo. I mean, gross. A nice car, an enjoyable, successful career, comparison to knowing Christ, it's absolute rubbish. They don't bring contentment, but Jesus does. He brings real contentment. Have a look at verse 10. Look how much he wants it. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And he's not, he's not just taking an interest in Jesus. It's not just another part of his portfolio that he might be able to invest in. He says in 3 verse 13, 3 verse 13, he's been taken hold of by Jesus. He's gripped by him. His heart has been arrested by Jesus. And so in 121, in chapter 1 verse 21, he says, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And why? What is it about Jesus that's so great? I mean, can you, like, you can see how passionate he is about it. You can see how the Bible Long, like moves people towards loving, loving God like this and finding contentment in him. Well, Paul explains further. If you look at chapter 2, and we should look at chapter 2 and come back to it as it explains the gospel. He loved us so much to die for us. Though he was God, he did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped at, but he humbled himself and he made himself low and he died a shameful death on the cross only to be risen to the place of all authority where every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Why? Because he's the Lord who holds the future in his hands. Have a look at 3 verse 20. 3 verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that, we'll be, that they will be like his glorious body. He's the one who holds the future. He's guaranteed that the story is a happy ending. And he's going to take us there to be like him and to be with him. Why is it so great? Because he holds not just the future, but he holds our present circumstances in his hands. Have a look at 4 verse 19. He says confidently, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. And why? Because he's with us and he will never, ever leave us. He is near us and with us and for us. And listen to the way he guards us. If you look at chapter 4, verse 5 and following, read that with me. The Lord is near. The end of verse 5, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's near us and he will guard us. He's got our present circumstances in his hands. He's got our future circumstances in his hands. He loves us so dearly. You know, I think 
that this is exactly what David was getting at when he wrote that psalm, that other psalm that we had read out before, Psalm 23. David was a shepherd who guarded his flock. And this is the day where there was no fences. So they're out in the wild and there's lots of dangerous stuff around, okay? And he, the, like, so David's had this experience with his sheep. He's protecting them from wild things, killing wolves and lions and those kinds of things. He guides them along to, to the places that are safe and places that benefit the sheep. And he suddenly realizes, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, and he, as, he, as he casts his, his thoughts back to, over his life, he realizes, the Lord has led me through green pastures. And he's led me beside still waters. He's my shepherd. He's protected me from wild creatures. And even in the dark valleys, even in the dark valleys, his rod and his staff have comforted me. Surely and goodness and mercy will follow me all my days because the Lord is my shepherd. And when you realize that the Lord is your shepherd, there's only, there's only one thing that you can conclude from that. There's only one thing you can conclude. I shall not be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I will lack nothing that I need because the Lord is the one who is near me. He's the one who is for me. He's with me. He holds my future. He holds my present. I don't know how you respond to Paul's claim, but he's discovered the secret of contentment. And you might feel a little jealous. You might feel like it's beyond you. Um, To have such a crystallized picture of Jesus, you might say is rare, even in church circles. You'd probably be fair in saying that. But Paul wants to say that this isn't something you just stumble upon. It's not something that just belongs to some people. And this is my third point. Paul wants to say that it's something that he's learned. He's learned the secret of contentment. And it's something that we can learn by everyone, including you and me. And so there are four tips that I want to finish with that Paul gives us about how to learn this contentment, how to let the gospel message sit at the the center of our hearts, how Jesus, the, the good shepherd, might arrest us and grip us as it has gripped Paul. Have a look at, uh, all of these points actually come from chapter 4 of Philippians. So if you turn back to Philippians chapter 4, if you've moved away from there, it'd be good to move back. And the first tip that Paul gives is this. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That's 4 verse 4. It's a bit confusing how someone can command someone else to rejoice, isn't it? It's almost, it's, it's like trying to command someone to love. It's like, what are you talking about? How can you command me to do something I'm not really in control of? But I think we're meant to take it this way. We're meant to cultivate joy in the gospel. To cultivate joy. We won't be able to rejoice in the Lord unless we understand the gospel of grace deep in our hearts. And we're asked to nurture our joy in Jesus. We need to preach the gospel to our hearts. We need to let some of these Bible verses that we've looked at tonight actually enter deeply into us. We need to reflect on them and think on them. We need to run our fingers through the riches of of the storehouse of God's grace regularly. And cultivate that that sense of joy so that Paul can say, rejoice, always, always rejoice. It's, It's phenomenal. 
but it's something we need to cultivate. Second thing he says in verse 8, have a look at verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And so the second thing is, think. Think. And what Paul's getting here, I think, is that the reality of our desires are the product of the things that we think about. Our desires are the product of the things we think about. If we, if we think about shopping catalogues all the time, I think that our desires will often move towards the things that are in the shopping catalogues. It's not rocket science. Um, so we set our hearts on things that are going to bring good desires. We, we cast our eyes upon the words of the scriptures that remind us of the gospel. We consider the act of someone who's served someone else after church and we go, that's awesome. And we dwell on that and think about it and praise it because it's admirable. It's lovely. It's pure and right and noble. And I think the flip side is also true. Um, if there are things that give us unhelpful desires, then maybe we need to not think about those things. Maybe it's appropriate for us to stop looking at glossy magazines and shopping catalogues. Maybe we need to stop reading or watching romantic literature or film. Maybe we need to avoid certain websites because we can obsess about them and we're constantly going back there to them and constantly thinking about them and desiring them. And really, there's, there's better things to love. In fact, in many of these things, one of the things that C.S. Lewis says is that in all these things, we love too little. I need to love things that are worthy, more, more worthy of our love so that we might love more. That's the second thing. Uh, the third thing is this. Verse 9, Paul says, practice. Verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice. Our desires impact our behaviour and our behaviour also impacts our desires. Paul says that we just need to obey God's commands. It doesn't always make sense that we need to do it. We don't always understand why. We don't always feel like doing it. But part of the practice of cultivating a joy in Jesus is actually to obey it because he told us to. And it might not make sense at first, it might not even after a little while, but certainly when we get to glory and we know and see Jesus from face to face, we'll understand it. The fourth and final thing is verse 5. It's pray. The Lord is near. Have a look at verse 5 again. This is, these are just great words that we need to remember and turn back to. Verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us to pray. There's no more direct response to our discontent. Those feelings of anxiety, those feelings of envy or greed or obsession, there's no more direct response to them than to pray. If you're in a situation where you know it, oh, it's not right, I'm not, I'm not happy. You're raging on the inside. It's tearing you apart. Then bring it before the Lord. That's what the psalmists are always doing, aren't they? Something's not right, Lord. And you just, they just belt it out there. Um, ask God to make you content. Ask God to bring about a joy in you. Confess your failures to him. Ask him to help. Ask him for his peace and to guard your hearts. 
as we learn what it means to be content, I think as we start practicing some of these things, those, those four things that I mentioned, Jesus will slowly... I've, I've, I'm, not, I'm not as mature as Paul. I haven't got contentment down. But I know that Jesus becomes more and more precious to you and your heart starts to fall for him in ways that it hadn't before. And I want to encourage you to keep persevering with that. And I want to say as well that there are other... like that as you do it, some of the desires that you'll have will become less and less. Some of those things that you've obsessed about, some of those things that you have loved and cherished, they become less and less important. And so practice these things and learn, at least start to learn the secret of contentment as Paul has done. Now there's more to say about contentment. And uh, next week we're actually going to be looking at the topic of faith as a way of complementing this kind of stuff because there's more to say. I mean, this morning I went... Um, and I bumped into a couple of friends I haven't seen for a while, I realised that they've just had a baby 16 weeks prematurely. And the baby's in the intensive care unit. And we're not sure how it's going to turn out. And would you say that it's right for them to be content about that? Would you say that it's right for um, us to be content with all of the injustice in the world? Uh, Of course it's not. And there's a right way to be discontent. But we're going to look at that a bit more next week. Uh, for now, it's, it's enough to say that if we, as we seek true contentment, there's one place to turn. Um, there's one Lord who is our shepherd. And it's right for us to learn contentment in him. Um, so why don't I pray and, and lead us on in that learning process. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, our Lord Jesus, our hearts are grieved, our spirits embittered at times. We've been senseless and ignorant at times. We've acted like brute beasts in our desires. Um, Father, we pray that in our discontentment that you would reveal yourself to us as the one who is always with us, holding us by our right hand, guiding us and counselling us. The one who has our present circumstances and our future circumstances in our hand. Our flesh and our hearts may fail, but you are our strength. You are my portion forever. Father in heaven, um, we ask that you would please help us to learn the secret of contentment. Uh, Please uh, quell the desires of our hearts that, that war within us and help us to know the secret of contentment as Paul has come to know it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.